You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michelle Norris. I'm a columnist for the Washington Post. The murder of George Floyd awakened the public to racial injustice and just how pervasive it can be. Floyd's life and enduring legacy are explored in a new book called His Name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. It's written by my colleagues, Robert Samuels and Tolu Oluonipa, and they both join me today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for writing this book. I'm so glad that I'm able to conduct this conversation because um, this story means something special to me. It hit me in a special way because I grew up just blocks from where this happened. So uh, again, thank you for taking the time to dive into this story in the way that you did. Um, I'm going to begin with you, Robert, because you you told um, our colleague Eugene Scott in a Twitter Spaces conversation that you don't often get a chance to write uh, the second draft of history. Journalists are usually writing the first draft. What were you able to say in the research and the writing of this book that perhaps we didn't fully understand when we were first covering the story back in 2020? There were so many lingering questions. I think what happened when George Floyd died was it caused a lot of external conversations. A lot of people asked, what can we do? What have we done about systemic racism? Where are our faults? And lost in that was the humanity of George Floyd himself. And so when we started this project, we knew that we wanted to show the world that George Floyd was loved, that he was ambitious, that he was persistent. And we hoped that by showing who George Floyd was, we could help see who we are as a society and start thinking about ways to create a better tomorrow. Tolu, when you were covering this story and we remember your coverage, at that moment where you're thinking, I can't let this go. This is a house I have to dwell in for a while. I have to dig deeper into the story. Did you know that you wanted to write a book about this eventually? Well, I felt convicted by Floyd's story. Um, I actually tried to avoid watching the video of his death, uh, in part because having covered so many of these deaths, so many of these police shootings that have led to mass protests, it just became a little bit too much. And I decided that I was going to cover the story. I was going to cover the political uh, repercussions of Floyd dying and of so many people taking to the streets to protest what, what had happened to him. But I did not want to engage with the video. But by the time we decided to do a project with our colleagues at the Washington Post called George Floyd's America, um, it became clear to me that there was more to the story than the nine minutes and 29 seconds of his death. Uh, that series looked at his life. It looked at uh, his beginnings. It looked at his time in the high school public school system in Houston. And even after we did that series, we knew that there was even more to the story. And as Robert said, being able to write that second draft history and being being able to turn it into a book gave us a chance to really reveal who Floyd was, reveal his essence, reveal his struggles, reveal the, the systems that he tried to navigate over the course of his life. And uh, we, we do hope people read this book because we think it's, it's quite revealing about not only Floyd, but the society that he came up with. And when people do read this book, um, they will see when they open it up, the introduction begins with the word flowers and you begin the book in that introduction with three words that may be surprising to people. The first three words are, I love you. Why did you decide, Robert, to start the book? Well, we wanted to append 
immediately the expectation of who George Floyd was. When we think about a person of George Floyd's size of his race, we do not think about a sensitive person, a person who's introspective. And the fact that he said these words to people constantly throughout the course of his life uh, showed the type of person he was and what he wanted to do. You know, DeCorey Lawson, he says, uh, George Floyd believed in giving people flowers while they were still alive. And that was because he knew and he had grown up with this fear that as a Black man living where he was, looking like he looked, any day could be his end. And so he wanted to make sure people knew that. Uh, Robert, he was he was six foot six, over 200 pounds. The book reveals that he was very insecure about his appearance. Um, and you said, you know, being a big man in America like this. And I know that sometimes black men have to I feel like they almost have to inoculate other people's fears because their size, their color, their blackness enters the room before they do. How did he comfort others? Um, how did he comfort himself around others as a result of that? It's funny, Michelle, one of the things that we learned was his friends would say George Floyd had a bit of the opposite of a Napoleon complex, that when he'd go into a room, he'd be so self-conscious and wanting to people like, to like him, that he'd greet people immediately so people could know that he was a good person, that he was a gregarious person. He loved complimenting people. That was one of his skills that helped people know they were safe and secure about him. And the thing about his body, when we first started this reporting, I had a sense that maybe he had an interesting relationship to his body because he had grown up believing that by bulking himself up, by looking that way, this was his way out of poverty. Uh, this was what was going to be the thing that would allow him to get that football scholarship, to allow to lift his family to new economic heights. And when that doesn't happen, he's left with this cruel contradiction, right? The thing that was supposed to save him is the thing that makes him a threat. Ultimately, when Derek Chauvin puts his knee on his neck, the one explanation that has ever been revealed to the public is that Derek Chauvin said it was because he was a big guy. He, he was a big guy with a multifaceted personality to his friends called him Big Floyd. Um, and given what we just heard from Robert, I'm not sure if he, if he liked that or embraced that or not, if that just sort of, you know, leaned into the things that made him uncomfortable. But the people who knew him best called him Perry. Can you tell us a little bit more about his personality? And, and we're learning about George Floyd, but who was Perry, the person that knew him best to? Junior was his full name, and his members called him Perry uh, by his middle name. Uh, he had the same full name as his father, and uh, he grew up in first in uh, North Carolina, uh, where his ancestors were from. And we have an entire chapter on his ancestry going back to the 1800s, uh, showing uh, the, the the family history, the strong family history, the proud family history that it included at one point. Wealthy landowner who owned more than 500 acres of land as a black man, as a former slave, uh, an enslaved person in Carolina, um, and was able to amass a great amount of wealth. Uh, Floyd came from that stock, and, and uh, unfortunately, he came into the world poor in part because racism had impacted his ancestors and stripped them of their wealth before he came into the world. But he came into the world as Perry, as someone who was known as uh, you know playful, uh, a, a child who was you know. 
always with his mother. Uh, we obviously saw the, the last moments of his life where he cried out for his mother, but as a child, as he, and he was Perry, he was always with his mother, kind of always in her lap, always under her. Uh, and you know, we revealed uh, that as he grew up and got older, he still had that sensitive sort of motherly nature about him. He, he wanted to provide for his other siblings, his younger siblings, his nieces and nephews. And he sort of faced some of those pressures to be the father of the house when his father was not around. And uh, that led him into a number of different decisions that he made that we get in, into the book. Um, but Perry was someone who was uh, very close to his family. Family was incredibly important to him. Uh, and he came from a big and proud family. and. Uh, he always wanted to make something for his family and uh, chasing those dreams and chasing that ambition uh, led him to a number of pathways and led to a number of different doors being closed in his face over the course of his life. Well, Tolo, he, he struggled academically and you, you clearly deal with that uh, in the book. He uh, leaned more into sports than his schoolwork and he did not receive his high school diploma. And it appears that that was a significant turning point for him, yes? That was. Uh, school was a time, and, and we, we reveal this in the book, it was a time where it seemed like things could be going right for him, uh, at least uh, because he had started to focus on football and athletics, and that was sort of where uh, people of his stature, of his size, from his community were shepherded. They were told, you know, you might not be able to do so well in school because our school is segregated, it's underfunded, there's not a lot of uh, investment in our school, but our sports team, uh, even without the investment, is able to dominate other teams because of the raw talent that our athletes have. And you're a big guy, you should go to, to focus on that. And, and he, he took that advice and he did. And his uh, athletics took him to the state championship game uh, and it looked like he would be on his way to a, a college scholarship. And the, the game was actually played on a, on a college uh, football field. And he was marveling at the surroundings when he was on that field and on that campus, but also re realizing that he would not be able to play on such a field because uh, his academics would not allow him to enter a school like that. Uh, and that was something that uh, really made it hard for him when he realized that he wasn't going to get his, uh, his diploma because he always saw himself as someone who was going to go to college and then go to the NFL. And he did end up going to college uh, after getting his diploma later on, uh, but his shaky education made it hard for him to get on the field. And he had to go back to third ward without a college degree, without an income, without a job. And uh, the rest is, is history. It took him down a very dark path. There are some very hard lessons and, and difficult revelations in this book. It is one man's story, but in some ways you widen the aperture and you talk about um, what it is to be a black person, specifically a black man in America. And Robert, um, you, you write that it turns out that the stresses of everything from everyday slights to fear, the constant fear of having an interaction with police, perhaps a deadly interaction with police, is something that sociologists and scientists say actually is in some ways altered the physiology of, of the black body. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what you discovered in doing that vein of research? Sure, it was one of the most fascinating pieces of research that I had ever looked into as a reporter. One of the things that happened in the 1970s and the uh, a little bit before that was people were starting to be look at the idea of uh, high stress coping and how people deal with stressful environments. And it was for the majority of 
public health research, he looked at middle-class white men who are working so hard. But when people started looking at the black body and examining it, they noticed these elevations in stress hormones, things like cortisol, uh, that were consistent within black people higher than their white counterparts, despite socioeconomic status, educational status, income where they lived. And what they started to conclude was the stress of being black in America, dealing with it, uh, has a physical toll on you. It could make you sick. And it's one of the reasons why black people uh, are more likely to die from a host of diseases. Now for a person like George Floyd, that becomes even more of the case uh, because uh, he was grown up with this attitude that you have to work twice as hard to get as far as a white person in this world, which uh, the scientific term for it, they call that John Henryism. And George Floyd, who was a big guy looked like, who looked like John Henry, he followed in that vein. He felt he had to work really hard to overcome his challenges. Uh, he knew that society wasn't giving him much grace when it came to his mistakes. And that took a toll on him. By the time George Floyd is 46 years old, he has bad knees, bad back. Uh, some signs, some of the autopsies say he has an heart, an enlarged heart had claustrophobia, high blood pressure, all of these things are markers, typically markers of stress hormones and uh, usually more represented in African-Americans than in their counterparts. When that research first surfaced, it was it was somewhat controversial. There has since been a widening body of research looking not just at African-Americans, but other cohorts that face quite a bit of stress due to poverty um, and, and other reasons. And it's much more accepted now. Um, Tolu, George Floyd was arrested several times on drug charges. He pled guilty to, um, it, it was it was armed robbery, yes. Um, and he walked out of jail in, in uh, 1988 with a label he was never fully able to expunge. And um, you, you write that, um, that the, the criminal justice system had a significant impact on his life and that having spent time in jail was another one of those those turning points for him. Contextualize the time that Floyd spent circling in and out of the criminal justice system. We didn't want to make any excuses, but we did want to show the context. George Floyd was born in 1973, right at the beginning of the time that the United States was starting this experiment of mass incarceration. The incarceration rate uh, increased tenfold uh, over the course of his life and, you know, Young black men were disproportionately targeted, uh, often for nonviolent drug crimes. And George Floyd had several nonviolent drug crimes on his uh, record. His first arrest was a was a possession uh, arrest, and there were several more of those. In part because the community that he lived in was highly targeted by um, by police officers in Third Ward, uh, Houston. What we also looked at was some of the research that showed uh, that Black Americans and Americans of all different races use drugs around the same rate. There's not a big difference or, or big discrepancy in the uses, usage of drugs. But when it comes to arrests for drug possession, there's a huge discrepancy, there's a huge difference. And that is a, an enforcement choice that we make as a society. And that enforcement choice had dire consequences for George Floyd. He was locked up several times 
while he was locked up, he was not able to get any treatment, uh, in part because Texas had moved away from rehabilitation and was trying to save money and figure out ways to be more punitive during the era of George W. Bush's governorship. And while George Floyd was imprisoned, he got no treatment, he got no training, and he was left with this record, this felony record that made it difficult for him to get a, a job. And that led to more uh, more desperate measures, more efforts to uh, uh, essentially get uh, caught up in that system once again and, and, and uh, find, him, find himself locked up over and over again. Uh, and we were able to get access to some of his writings. Uh, and in those writings, he, he apologized for some of the mistakes that he made. He, he agonized over this, the tough choices that he felt that he had to make. He prayed for absolution for you know the times where he felt like he was un unable to stop himself from descending into his temptations. And you know, one of the things Robert found was when, when Floyd uh, ended up becoming addicted, it, it became difficult for him to to escape some of those temptations. And uh, now we see addiction as a medical issue, but at the time he was coming up, it was seen as something to be uh, criticized and penalized, and he suffered from that gravely. Yeah, and we know from um, the way some people reacted to his killing others, some people who still feel that way. Um, it is, you know, his story is, is, is a complicated one. Uh, what drew him to Minneapolis, from Houston to Minneapolis? Robert? Well, after, well, after George Floyd comes back from prison, uh, he is his his biggest interest is not going back to prison. He comes out with crippling claustrophobia. He knows that's not the life he wants to lead. That's not the life he ever wanted to leave. But the other truth about it was that he was living in a community that was right on the cusp of another type of epidemic. That was the epidemic to over-the-counter prescription medicine uh, that no one was paying attention to. Uh, he had a criminal record. He could not get a job. He was trying to break this use, and one day he's outside on the corner with some of his friends. He was a corner boy, and one of his friends comes out. He looks a little pudgier than he used to. His face is less jaundiced, and he says, I've gotten my life together in Minnesota, and any of you guys can go and get some change in Minnesota. George Floyd wanted that change, so he hooked up with a pastor who has a church and his main ministry was to be able to try and get people out of addiction. The truth of the matter, though, was that in a state like Texas, if you did not have insurance and Texas did not expand Medicaid, if you had a criminal record, you couldn't get a professional license in most fields. You couldn't even become a barber and uh, you could not get any treatment. And so he says to them, Houston can take care of itself. Why don't you try a rehab program in Minnesota? And George Floyd, not just thinking about his own chance to heal, but the chance to provide a better life for his young daughter, Gianna, decides he's going to take that chance. He's going to get on a bus for a thousand miles and go to the snowy place and hope that he can create, create a better life for himself. Tolu, we've seen We've seen Black death on small screens with alarming regularity over the last 10 years. In Louisiana, in South Carolina, in New York City, in, I mean, that, that, that daisy chain of Black death is very long. But this case was different. 
this case hit people in a different way. And was it because it was so long? Was it because it was when we were all home and introspective because we were locked down in the pandemic? I'm just curious if I could quickly hear from both of you why you think this in particular ignited um, a, a real focus on social justice that we have not seen before and a different kind of conversation about police reform. Yeah, Michelle, you, you, you hit the nail on the head in, in outlining some of the things that were happening in the spring of 2020. I believe it was a, it was everything. It was a mixture. It was the fact that we were all stuck at home in the middle of a pandemic where we were already seeing deaths uh, on, a, on a grand scale and the black community being disproportionately harmed by the coronavirus crisis. We also were uh, at a time when um, people had uh, seen the ubiquitous nature of the cell phone videos and Darnella Frazier being able to capture this on camera was something that was so critical and it wasn't the kind of thing that was captured in a five second clip, a grainy quick clip. It was something that you watched over the course of nine minutes and you saw someone agonizing, crying out for their mother. It was universal in nature to see a life squeezed out. Uh, that was something that resonated with people who may, in, in other cases, have said, you know, maybe the police officer was right in that case, or maybe the police officer actually did fear for his life. Uh, in this case, you know, you saw a prone man lying down on his stomach, crying for his mother, and then lying still, not doing anything for several minutes while he continued to be suffocated. And I think the, the universal nature of people essentially saying that this should not have happened, that this was not right, made this uh, a different case and it made it a case where people couldn't look away. We were all watching TV. There were no concerts going on. There were no uh, sports games in, in a way that people could go and just forget about what they're seeing on the news. We all had to watch and we all had to grapple with the country that had created the conditions that led to George Floyd's death. And there was this odd and, intersection where George Floyd and, well, go ahead, Robert. Oh, no, I, I was just going to add that because every living being knows what it's like to cry for their mother. It allowed people to see a metaphor there that maybe they had not seen before. You saw an agent of the state, a police officer, killing someone with a callous, almost brazen disregard for their life, ignoring their calls for mercy. And I think when people saw that, they began to understand. Uh, you know, I did a story in Oklahoma a little bit after this happened uh, to ask that question of a, a group of white women who had been talking about it. And one of them said to me, after that video, every time I saw a black man, I said to myself, he could be next. And I thought that was the power of the video. It's interesting. I, I interviewed someone um, not long after that in the summer, and she said, every time I see a black man because he cried out for his mother, I think of his mother when I see the black man. I see him as a son. Yeah. Um, so there was that dimension to this. There was this odd intersection, though, where these two men came together in front of this convenience store, and they actually had worked in the same place at some point. Um, was there anything to that, or was it just that, just a strange coincidence that Derek Chauvin was a bouncer at the same place, this club on the north side of Minneapolis, where George Floyd had also worked? This was one of the things we tried to look into, uh, and because it was one of the prevailing theories that this might have been more personal. Here's what the reporting found, is that uh, occasionally George Floyd did work at the 
at a place where uh, Derek Chauvin was moonlighting and people who said that they knew each other, they quickly recounted, recanted that tale that could not be verified. And so there is little evidence to show that Derek Chauvin and George Floyd had known each other. Now, um, you probably know better than anyone on this call how small and interconnected a place like Minneapolis is. So to have that sort of intersection, that connection is not incredibly unusual. Uh, James Baldwin told us that it's easier for people to cry than it is for them to change. Two years on from this, um, what has happened um, with that examination of social justice and uh, the conversations about police reform? Where are we at right now in regards to this? And for both of you, what do you want readers to take from this book? Uh, I'll, I'll start. Um, people did did cry, and there was this outcry nationally and internationally after Floyd's death. And I don't want to downplay the importance uh, of that. I mean, we had an election that happened a few months later. We had multiple changes at the local level. You know, different police departments were overhauled. Things happened in the corporate and cultural world, and systemic racism became a, a, a word and a, a, a theme that people talked about on a more regular basis. And that is that does say that does mean something. It, there is change that is taking place on a on a minor level and a different on a number of different fronts. But when it comes to the kind of broad sweeping legislative change that people thought might happen after um, George Floyd died, died, the kind of civil rights bill that might happen to change and reform policing or change and reform a systemic racism on a broader level, we saw that just get swallowed by our political system, which does, which tends to grind complex and nuanced issues to a halt. And that's what happened with policing reform. That's what happened with a number of different measures on a national level. Uh, and I think one of the things we want people to take from the book is that, uh, you know, this is a country that has a long and proud history of progress. And sometimes that progress happens in fits and fits and starts. And one of the most important parts of making progress is you know, being educated and dealing with issues that involve nuance and complexities on the level. And sometimes that that is difficult in our political environment. But we hope that people from all different political political stripes will read this book and re-examine some of the, the views that we have about what where this country is and, and what it's like for someone like George Floyd and, and how we might be able to change it in ways so that Floyd does not, you know, start off his journey years before he meets Derek Chauvin in such a precarious way. And if maybe that happens, maybe he's on a pathway in which he does never, he never encounters Derek Chauvin and we never have this kind of outcry again. Robert? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I can't stop thinking about is the look in George Floyd's eyes when he first encounters the police officer. And in those eyes, I think a lot of people who are Black in this country knew what was going on. He understood something about America that others did not understand. When folks read this book, I hope they understand and they get to know something else about what George Floyd thought he understood about America, was it was a place that could change and a place that he held on to a stubborn hope that people might see him differently and might treat him differently. And when these protests broke out, 
so many people also held on to that stubborn hope that things can be different. If we look and acknowledge the problem and the lingering racist history that lies within this country's fabric. And so when people read the book, I hope they understand those twin lenses. One, George Floyd's look at the reality of the situation, but they understand George Floyd's larger outlook on the possibilities of America and that readers will get a chance to think about it, join in and try to make the country a better place. The place where this happened is the intersection of two fairly busy streets, but it was, you know, it was a quiet place. It was a, a neighbor, there's a, there's a gas station, there's a convenience store, there used to be a pizza parlor, there's a big park, large church not, not far away, um, working class community. But it's completely changed into a, a monument that is always evolving. There, um, people go there to think. People go there. I was there, and there was a group of uh, a basketball team from Milwaukee, and every one of those children of different races um, were all weeping, leaning into each other. I was there once when um, someone came to represent the police officers who we felt were not well represented there, and wound up having at first a difficult, but then a, a longer conversation that I don't know if it was productive or not, but there were people who were talking to each other who probably wouldn't otherwise. Um, so there, there, there's people that gather there all the time. Both of you, what do you think should happen to that space for Minneapolis, but also for what it represents? I was going to say for the country, but this, these are global protests that you know acknowledge what happened in Minneapolis. So your book is in some way a monument to his life, but what should happen to that space in terms of remembering what happened there? I think it's important that people continue to remember uh, what happened. Uh, it's so easy with our news cycle and with so many things that have happened over the past two years that we could easily forget um, what happened in the summer of 2020. What happened was a historical event in this country. We saw people from all different walks of light, life taking to the streets under a similar cause to say systemic racism, to say police brutality should not be welcome in this country that we all call a home. And I think, you know, having a monument, having at least uh, one way to remember what happened in 2020 so it doesn't get forgotten. Uh, you know, we're not policymakers. We're, we're not going to prescribe exactly how we should remember this. But one of the things we wanted to do with our book was to make sure that we document this for history. This was a historical event. We want to make sure that people knew what happened before Floyd died, what happened on the day he died, and what has happened since. And we think it's important that people remember that just so that we can see where we are as a country and make the progress that we need to make in order to uh, hopefully avoid you know, a similar thing happening again in the future. Robert, last word from you. Well, inside George Floyd Square, and I spent a good amount of time there, including with some of George Floyd's family and some of the people who look at the square. Look at the square. Uh, one thing that I think our book shows, you know, it talks to everyone from people who went to high school with George Floyd to his second grade teacher to his to the president of the United States himself. And all of them have equal footing in the book. None are more elevated than the other because we all sort of have to figure out how to tackle systemic racism together. And when I think about what's happening at George Floyd Square, which is, you know, one of the more controversial issues in Minneapolis, it reminds me of the importance of listening to communities, of understanding the context in which they live and trying to come up with good solutions for them. And uh, that's what 
we hope that the book accomplishes. That's what we hope uh, gets accomplished in that neighborhood, uh, because it feels to me that the context of people's lives should be what drives discussions more so than the whims of simply looking at policy making or intersection. Tolu Olornipa, Robert Samuels, thank you very much for joining us. The book is called, his name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. It's out today, hope you will find it, hope you will read it. Thanks to both of you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.